You're listening to episode 238 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor here, and I'm joined as usual by the great Dan Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. How's it going, Chief? Oh, it goes. Uh, you, you getting ready for a little bit of downtime next week, Leslie? Hell yeah, I have. I took the, the entire week off. My wife and I are hosting Thanksgiving for, I think it's 15 people, so very excited. A little stressed out to see if we can accommodate 15 people in our house, but uh, yeah, I'm excited. Really looking forward to the downtime. What about you, Dan? Just going to go up to uh, Santa Barbara, see my parents, and I, I believe we are actually going to a restaurant for Thanksgiving to do a restaurant-y type Thanksgiving, which will at least somewhat reduce the chaos, which is sometimes a nice thing to do. Yeah. That's good. That sounds really, really lovely. Well, uh, this is a, a good transition for us to say that we will be off. TV's Top 5 will be off next week. Our next episode will be December 1st. Man, I can't believe the holidays are here already, but very exciting. Time goes weird in general, and time also goes weird because all of the news of the past week has been productions ramping up and all of that. So it feels a little bit like it's, I don't know, mid-July. I, I don't know when it feels like it is, but it definitely doesn't feel like it's the end of the year because this is normally the time at which, as we may have mentioned in recent weeks, productions are shutting down for Thanksgiving and Christmas. But instead, well, it's just been a strange year in Hollywood. Yeah, perfectly stated. We'll talk much more about The Stranger in Hollywood coming up in our episode. This week, we're going to be joined by BFF of the Five, Alan Seppenwall, who's going to talk about his upcoming book, The Oral History of the O.C. I'm so tempted every time we say the O.C. to add the word bitch to the end, but I'm going to try and just keep it to this one reference. I don't think it's going to be just one reference at all, but we'll see how the conversation goes with Alan, but it will be nice to have Alan not to converse with us, but to plug. So he's definitely going to plug. Yeah, but before we get to that, we're going to lead off with... Number one. Headlines. Up first, the broadcast networks are doing the math on their fall schedules, which are no longer fall or are now fall of 2425. Who even knows what the seasons are anymore? CBS has pushed the first year shows Matlock and the Wayans comedy Papa's House. And yes, I keep forgetting that there's a Matlock reboot every single time we mention it. It's the thing with Kathy Bates. I, I still can't internalize it being an actual thing, but no reason why not. Anyway, Matlock and Papa's House are being pushed to the 2024 and 2025 broadcast season, and Fox is doing the same with 911 Lone Star. Right, and that's of course joining ABC's High Potential, which is also being held for fall 2024 for next season. So kind of smart, it, you know. It's helpful when you do year-round development like this. We saw some hits that came out of the pandemic that were developed during the pandemic, but waited to film and got pushed and the extra time allowed it to recast and maybe some, you know, make some other creative uh, retooling. And thus came Night Court. So, you know, being patient and taking your time with a broadcast show actually can work. High hopes here. In other development news, friend of the five, Sean Ryan, is teaming with John Hamm to adapt the latter's narrative podcast, American Hostage, for TV. That's going to be shopped to streamers in the coming weeks. Stars has given a series order to its Spartacus sequel. This one is going to be titled House of Asher, with Nick Tarabay reprising his role in the spinoff. Dan, did you watch Spartacus? Not as much as clearly I, I should have. It's one of those shows where the conventional wisdom was that it got good at 
dot, dot, dot point, whether that point happens to have been episode seven, episode 10, episode whatever. I got right up to the point at which it was still bad and then not up to the point at which it was good, which unfortunately just happens with some slow starting shows. One of these days, though, when I've got a little free time and when there's no other TV to watch, I'll totally uh, give a, a second shot to plowing through those rough patches and get to the good stuff. My lasting memory of covering Spartacus was interviewing Lucy Lawless about her Merkin. And if you don't know what a Merkin is, I will save you the, the joy of looking that up yourself. The thing is, I feel like everybody knows what a Merkin is or everybody who has any interest in Spartacus knows what a Merkin is because that was like 95% of the discourse around that show was everybody talking about Merkins. I mean, I guess there will be some excitement to see what the evolutions in Merkin-based technology have been uh, since the original series went off the air. I mean, I think these will be the best Merkins ever and it will be very exciting to see if fans of the show are able to distinguish between generational versions of the Merkin. And wrapping up headlines, Netflix has renewed Rob Lowe's family comedy Unstable for a second season with a new showrunner taking over for Victor Fresco. This is a minor disappointment because if I had to list my top five things about the first season of Unstable, a show that I thought was perfectly good, Victor Fresco's involvement would have been probably thing number one. That was the thing that actually caused me to go, ooh, this is a show that I actually need to watch as opposed to a show that I don't need to care about. It'll be interesting to see what they do with that. If headlines seem a little short, well, we've got more to say on a bunch of other headlines coming up in our next two segments. Number two. Up next, final season alert. Two big shows coming to an end. Not necessarily big, but long running. Let's go with that. Young Sheldon will officially wrap its run with its upcoming seventh season on CBS. That network has been the home of the Big Bang Theory franchise since the 2007-08 season. Big Bang Theory creator Chuck Lorre is also developing another spinoff, which no details have been revealed yet, but that one is going to be for Max. And if you know that seems weird, it shouldn't be because... Big Bang Theory is produced by Warner Brothers and Max is owned by Warner Brothers Discoveries, bringing the crown jewel home to Max after Young Sheldon concludes its run. Dan, were you surprised to see this this show ending? I mean, Seven Seasons is a pretty good run, and this was never a show that was a hit in quite the same way as Big Bang Theory, obviously, and it, it never had kind of the ancillary attention, whether it was you know, critical whatever or Emmy attention or any of that stuff. So, you know, not shocked. And look, I've said this before and I'll say it again. I watched three seasons of Young Sheldon, maybe even possibly into a fourth and thought that it became a pretty decent version of what it was. It was never really Big Bang Theory. It was a, you know, single cam comedy with a different location and a different cast. But I thought everyone in the show was very good. I I fell behind it because my appreciation for the show was on one level and my need to watch other shows was on another level. So it just kind of got lost. Definitely looking at the pictures from this season. Everybody's gotten so old and so big. Young Sheldon is now, well, he's not quite middle-aged Sheldon, but he is definitely... Late teen Sheldon? uh, You know, yeah, mid to late teen Sheldon, and the younger sister seems to be older, and everyone seems to be older, which, little known fact, I'm betting that we all also look older if you take pictures of us now versus three to four years ago, so let's not be too shocked, and let's not be... Shush. No, no, sorry, not we all. I I mean myself, you look every bit as youthful as you did before the pandemic, Leslie. It's like you've got a picture of you that's aging in your in your attic and you are not aging at all, unlike young Sheldon who has no such witchcraft. No, it, look, it yes, se- 7 seasons is a good run for a TV show. Period. Yeah, I mean obviously not the 12 of the original Big Bang Theory which ranks 
still as TV's longest running multi-camera in history. And I think, you know, you're right. I was a diehard Big Bang Theory fan. I feel like I covered that show almost from start to finish. And I just couldn't get into Young Sheldon. I wanted to, but I just, it, it just, I don't know. It just didn't speak to me the same way that the flagship did. It was a very different show, but I thought it did some interesting things with its Texas locations. I thought the cast was very good. Having Laurie Metcalf's real life daughter playing the younger version of that character was, yeah, was kind Perry, of a, yeah. a stroke of genius. Inspired uh, casting for sure. Yeah, for sure. Not a bad show at all. And it's, you know, it's all available to watch on Paramount Plus if you feel like for some reason binging six seasons of Young Sheldon before the final season. Is it on Paramount Plus? I'm pretty sure it's on Max. Is I mean, it? I think Paramount I... Plus has next day episodes because it's ah, still a okay. CBS yes. show, but okay. the library of it is on Max. Because I'm, take, I'm said, taking your word for that because that is absolutely the context in which I watched it on, on Paramount Plus back in the day was watching episodes without commercials in the same way that I watch episodes of Survivor and Amazing Race on Paramount Plus uh, without commercials now. That is yeah. my primary use of Paramount Plus is avoiding commercials. Well, speaking of Paramount Plus, SEAL Team is going to conclude in 2024 with its upcoming seventh season on Paramount+. Plus. So this is the procedural starring David Boreanaz that aired its first four seasons on CBS before making the move to streaming. The planned SEAL Team movie that's been kicking around for about two years now, that's no longer happening because, well, you've got a seventh season. I guess. I don't know, Dan. I can't say I've seen a minute of this one. I definitely watched the four pilot? or five episodes at the start of the <laughs> first season. I think, I mean, it wasn't bad. That was that was sort of my primary takeaway from it. It was one of those, oh, David Morianis is a star. Sure, why not kind of things. And I didn't need to watch it anymore because it was not a show that was in any way <laughs> directed at me. And it was not a show that in any way required either my approval or even my attention to continue. And it's perfectly viable for shows like that to exist and to exist for seven seasons. I think really and truly the only genuinely notable aspect of this is to wonder what this is going to mean for David Boreanaz's plans starting in the fall of 2024. And if he is going to be like, my God, if a fall goes by and I am not on a television show, the world is going to collapse. In fact, the entire television industry is going to collapse. Or is he going to go, I've been a regular on a television show for an awful long time yeah. and maybe it's time to take a, a year off. <laughs> quite quite a streak between Buffy and Angel and Bones and SEAL Team. It's really impressive. Oh, it totally is. And again, going back to my low level of approval for the original pilot, David Boreanaz is very good at the thing he does. And whatever, wherever you want to put it, he is an exceptional broadcast television star for a modern age. Now, is he going to be like, okay, now is the time for me to see if someone wants to hire me to play a villain in Dr. Death season three or something? I'm just trying to think of kind of arbitrary things where David Boreanaz could be like, what is the thing I can do to dirty up my image? Not obviously like he didn't play a villainous aspect of Angel on both Buffy and Angel at various different times. He totally did that. But I'm just thinking what he has done has been a broadcast TV star. And that is very different from what 2023 TV stardom looks like. And so he could absolutely be like, is there life for me on cable? Is there a, a Netflix show where I could go on and do something somewhat 
edgy. I, I don't know, you know, and as simple as could I play the evil lawyer in season four of The Lincoln Lawyer or something? That doesn't seem like a wholly unreasonable leap for David Boreanaz to take in his career. Or does he just want to be like, maybe I can get a production deal and be an executive producer on some other procedural on CBS or something and just take a year and cash a paycheck and realign my life? He's allowed to do whatever he wants. I would imagine that there are going to be casting directors lining up at his door to book him on something because not only does he have an incredibly loyal fan base, but he is exactly the kind of of actor that people want. We've been joking about it for a few months, but this is where TV is headed, the gourmet cheeseburger of streaming, right? Everyone wants their tried and true big broad procedural that can play all over the globe. And when you with a guy like David Boreanaz, he would fit perfectly in that, in anything in that in that mold. So think think Jack Ryan and and Reacher. These are the kind of shows that we're going to be seeing a lot more of. I think that's plausible. And I yeah. kind of wonder like if, you know, for season two of The Diplomat, do they need the hunky secret security guy who watches out for Carrie Russell's character and maybe Sparks Fly or something? And is that the kind of thing that anyone's actually going to be looking to David Boreanaz to do? Like if you spend a certain amount of time as a broadcast TV star, are people going to think that you're too broadcast? For their streaming show. I don't know. He's going to... But streaming wants broadcast material. So that that's what I'm saying. He's going to have his pick of the litter. Streaming wants broadcast style shows. Whether Steve, TV wants broadcast stars, as opposed to still wanting movie stars who are willing to do TV for eight to 10 episodes, that's my question. And it is the exception where you get an Alan Richson being kind of a somewhat out of nowhere star on, on Reacher, rather than trying to see who is the biggest name we can get. And I don't know that for a Netflix show or for uh, an HBO Max show that necessarily David Boreanaz is the kind of star they want, but I think he could find a way to work himself into that. Again, we'll, we'll be curious because the guy is a star and it'll be interesting to see what kind of star he is. And if the television business really and truly makes the kind of shows that he's the star of in quite the same volume anymore. Yeah, that's a, all, all great points, Dan. And, and you know, in, in terms of shows getting final seasons, you're going to start to see a lot more of these decisions coming in because as we've talked about uh, before, the era of contraction has begun. The peak TV bubble has burst. So shows ending, especially expensive ones, even if they are owned by the same platform. SEAL Team is a production of CBS Studios. Young Sheldon, though, is wholly owned by Warner Brothers. It's not a co-production. Warner's doesn't do co-pros for Chuck Lorre shows, really. So when you're looking at shows that getting up, are that are getting up in age, those continue to be expensive. And in this era of budget cutting, you're going to start to see more and more more shows getting these these final seasons or coming up next outright canceled well before we get to that and we've also been seeing a lot of shows trimming cast regulars so this is all to, to your mind this is all part of the same adjustment or recalibration to the industry basically yeah it's 100 a recalibration of the industry and this you know a lot of people are crediting the strikes with with this but this was already happening well before the strikes were even a glimmer of a possibility so Number three. 
Up third, we're going to take a look at some of the big cancellations that have happened in the past week. Netflix really cleaned house with one fell swoop, canceled five shows all at once. Shadow and Bone was the biggest of them. It's planned spinoff, The Long Gestating Six of Crows, also axed, although that was never formally announced. It did have a writer's room uh, with a lot of those scribes taking to social to praise what the work that they had done on the, that project. Also canceled at Netflix is Glamorous. This is the former CW pilot that Netflix picked up when the CW before it was Nextstar's CW passed on it. Also canceled at the streamer is the adult-leaning animated series Agent Elvis with Matthew McConaughey, Captain Fall, and Farzar. And I have not a clue what those latter two are. Dan, do you? Uh, Captain Fall was about an inept cruise ship captain. And that's about all I know. I watched about 10 minutes of the first episode and went on to something else. I'm the very tiniest bit disappointed about Agent Elvis, but only the very tiniest bit. You know, it's one of those shows which I I actually really kind of enjoyed watching for the first season, which I did watch. But at the same time, it's one of those shows where if I never watched another episode of it, I wasn't ever going to be you know, traumatized by that. And so it was a decent show. And I don't want to say it had its life because it's not like there weren't additional adventures that we could have gone on with Elvis and his chimp sidekick and all of that. But it obviously was not a show that got all that much buzz in the same way that the second season of, of Shadow and Bone definitely felt as if it was less a part of the conversation, obviously, than Netflix wanted. You know, the, the first season when it arrived, there was a lot of buzz about that show. There was a lot of, okay, this could be the next big YA franchise. And the show I itself mean, was based on was a okay. beloved book series, which always helps. And when we talk about the need and thirst for IP, this is a big reason why. But the second season kind of came and I didn't watch the second season and which was actually odd because I liked the second book in the Lee Berdugo main series significantly more than I liked the first book. So I was like, okay, well, eventually I'm going to get around to watching the second season. And apparently I don't necessarily need to do that now. I'm At this point, I'm much more curious slash concerned slash mostly curious about what's happening with Lee Berdugo's other book series with the Ninth House series, which is somewhat more adult skewing and I believe was set up at Amazon at some point. And then I don't remember any details. The second book in the series came out a few months ago. It's sitting on my shelf. I haven't read it yet, but I thought that the first book really did feel like it had the material to be a pretty solid streaming series. Yeah. And Amazon development, it's like a black hole. They announce so much stuff. I'm always kind of impressed when something that they announce actually makes it to air because I used to keep track of every single series that Amazon announced. And just so much of the stuff never saw the light of day or it was announced and then just vanished. No casting news, no drop, nothing. It just like they make a big splash with a big press release that goes everywhere. And it's like, oh, big name, big name, big name, big IP, big IP. We bought this. We spent this, etc. And then it just vanishes into the ether. It's impossible to keep track at this point. Maybe this uh, industry contraction will help with you know Amazon cleaning house and maybe going through some of its development and maybe prioritizing stuff that's working. I don't know. But that's certainly what Netflix is, did here in one fell swoop. So I don't think that there's any reason to be alarmed uh, at these cancellations. But I do think you're going to continue to see this, not just at Netflix, but everywhere. And speaking of everywhere, Disney had its fair share of cancellations in this past week. Freeform, the Disney's younger skewing cable network, canceled its first foray into animation with Praise Petey, which was one and done. And in a Disney-related news dump that came after we recorded late last week, ABC canceled The Rookie Feds 
and passed on The Good Lawyer, the pilot spinoff of The Good Doctor that was going to mark Felicity Huffman's return to television. Again, belt tightening is happening everywhere. Contraction is happening everywhere. And now that the strikes are over, you're starting to see broadcast networks weigh what they actually have, when they can get it on the air, the economics of when they can get it on the air, and if it's worthwhile to hold for next season, which we talked about in Headline. Not hugely shocked by these. I mean, Praise PD felt like it had absolutely no connection to whatever it is that Freeform's brand is at, at this moment. It was kind of out of left field and the sort of thing that had been obviously in development for long enough that it was part of a different conception of what Freeform was. And now yeah, a couple the of network of- executive changes over there. But look, they landed syndicated repeats of Family Guy. So they were trying to build off of that. Obviously, that's not working. Whether it worked or not, I don't know. I don't know the ratings on this. Not that it matters because most people watch Freeform shows on Hulu anyway. What you're, I think you're seeing here is Freeform is at a crossroads, right? They were just dropped from charter, so they're in fewer households now. They no longer have their own dedicated executive. Instead, ABC's number two, Simran Sethi, who came up under Carrie Burke at Freeform, now oversees the network in addition to overseeing ABC's development. But anyway, there's just a lot of things going on at Freeform. And one of the things that that is not happening right now are scripted originals, whether it's animated or live action. They've got the final season of Grownish, no decision yet on Cruel Summer, and then Good Trouble still exists over there too. And no word about that coming to a close anytime soon, but I can't imagine it's got much more life left in it. But like, if Freeform is moving away from all of this, what are the becomers watching on TV, Leslie? What of the becomers? Dan's making a joke at former Freeform president Tom Asham, who came up with that term when he rebranded the network from ABC Family as Freeform, which still sounds like a feminine hygiene product or some sort of undergarment. Yeah, it's... I think they're just watching everything on Hulu, Dan. I don't know what's going to happen to Freeform. You know, the last time that I did any kind of story on Freeform, I can imagine that they're still going to be developing stuff. But right now it's belt tightening season. You're at the end of the year. The strikes are over. No one's going to be buying at least until January when they can actually look at, at what their 2024 budget is. Some of these shows are getting canceled because the production was delayed and that impacts their marketing spend for next year or 2025. Yeah, you're going to start to see more shows fall by the wayside because of either the cost of them or the idea that they can't get out in the air until much later, etc. So, I mean, the fallout from the strikes and the fallout from the peak TV bubble bursting is going to be significant and you're already seeing it. We did a segment a couple of weeks ago with all the different shows that were canceled during the strikes and that list is just going to continue to grow. I don't mean to be all doom and gloom, but this is the state of the industry. It is. And I think the thing that people should be remembering and that you've said and that I just want to repeat just because it bears repeating is there will be a lot of attribution of this to the strike. And as you've said, and as we will keep repeating, this was all in motion before the strike. This is just when we're actually seeing people able to do the things that maybe were on hold during the strike. But this is not because of the strike. The strike is a cause of why this is happening. This is an industry alignment that was in or realignment that was in the process well before things got weird this summer. Yeah. When you realize that the economics of streaming don't work, yeah, you're going to see this this massive contraction. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Number four. Up next, it's time for our interview segment. Joining us this week is BFF of the Five, Alan Sepinwall, the chief TV critic at Rolling Stone, who returns to the podcast this week to discuss his new book, Welcome to the OC, the Oral History which arrives November 28th via all of your standard booksellers. The book, which helps celebrate the former Fox drama's 20th anniversary, features interviews with the show's cast, including Misha Barton, Adam Brody, and Ben McKenzie, as well as series creator and former TV's top five guests, Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage. Thanks so much for joining us, Alan. It's always happy to be here with some of my best podcasting friends. Let's get started. What made you want to explore the OC in this fashion? Because doing this kind of research and reporting required to do something like this, that is a lot of heavy lifting. It is. I have to admit, I did not come up with the idea. Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage came to me. It occurred to them that the 20th anniversary of the show was coming up. They felt like they wanted to revisit it. They thought that they could get the entire cast to participate since they were the ones sort of organizing it. And they thought of me because a million years ago, I wrote a different book about the OC called Stop Being a Hater and Learn to Love the OC, which is a very thin, in every sense of the word, book that came out in the spring of 2004. And so it seemed to me like this was an opportunity to do it right also to do an oral history, which I've never done before in any form. I've never even like written an online or magazine oral history. And I knew I would get to talk to everybody. And Josh and Stephanie like insisted that they wanted it to be a warts and all portrait and that they and everyone else were going to be as candid as possible with me. And they proved true to their word on that. Okay. Did you go back and reread or re-skim at least the first book? I occasionally glanced at it and then very quickly sort of closed it. There's really not enough there that would have been worth it. I mean, because it was an unauthorized book being rushed to, to print to capitalize on the fad of the show. And every time I sort of started getting a little too detailed in my descriptions of what had happened in the OC season one, the editor said, you, you need to be vaguer than that. We could run into copyright infringement. So, <laughs> so, I mean, I think there's some good things in there, but a lot of it is sort of me trying to understand the assignment as best I could. How many people did you speak with and how many hours of interviews did you wind up with in doing this book? Oh, God. I mean, I've got a, I've got a whole spreadsheet. I mean, technically, uh, my researcher, Oriana Schwint, put the spreadsheet together, but there, there's dozens of people on there. We talked to every single member of the main cast. We talked to, I talked extensively with Josh and Stephanie. I talked with a lot of other writer, producer, director, people on the show, crew members. I talked to Doug Lyman, who directed the pilot. I talked to McGee, who was originally supposed to direct the pilot. I talked to executives at Fox and at Warner Brothers at the time. I talked to executives and producers responsible for like Laguna Beach and Real Housewives of Orange County, which sort of basically only exist because of the OC. I talked to members of the bands that were featured on the OC and had their career trajectories altered as a result of it. I talked to guest stars from the show. I talked to almost everybody that I wanted to. One thing I was wondering was, did you talk to Stephanie and Josh exclusively together? Because there was a lot of back and forth and interplay between them in the oral history, which is obviously a kind of thing that you want to simulate because you want to give a sense of their relationship. But on the other hand, I kind of wonder, and I kind of wondered as I was reading it, how much they play into their dynamic when they're together versus how much they might not if you ever got them separate. I think I did 12 or 13 interviews just with them. And I think two of them were Josh solo because Stephanie had something going on. And then at the very end, I said, all right, Stephanie, you and I should talk 
solo, just because there are certain things Josh and I discussed without you that I would like your perspective on. Just sort of trying to get a complete picture. But the great majority of it was the two of them together. And I've tried to present that dynamic as much as possible. Like you can very clearly tell the two of them are in conversation with one another in a way that is sometimes readily apparent in the rest of the book, even when people are not talking together. Like there's this sort of exchange between Preston Beckman, who was Fox's head of scheduling, and Peter Roth, who was head of the Warner Brothers TV studio at the time, about moving the show to Thursday at nine o'clock opposite Grey's Anatomy and uh, CSI that is to me, really, really funny and how Peter responds to what Preston had to say. And that's what a good oral history is supposed to do. It is supposed to give the impression that you have all of these people in a room as opposed to separate interviews. What surprised you about the level of candor that they particularly had, Josh and Stephanie? Because there, there are a lot of places where they're underlining and emphasizing their regrets about things. How much did it feel like spontaneous candor and how much did it feel like kind of 20 years of performative candor, I guess? I don't know if it was performative because there's a lot of things that like I had to keep pushing them on. Like they literally postponed, I think, two or three of the interviews where we were supposed to talk about the third season, which is by far the worst season of the show. Part of it was they have a lot going on because they're, you know, have this big production company. But part of it is I could tell they just didn't want to talk about it until they absolutely like we had run out of time. And so when we get to talking, the things about Misha Barton's exit, they've clearly thought about that a lot over the years. They have many regrets. They express all of them over the course of the book. That whole chapter is, to me, not at all the story that I thought it was going to be because there was all this gossip and rumors at the time. Like, did Misha get fired? Did she quit? Was she causing problems? All of this. And the actual story is much more complicated than that and is largely the fault of other people who are not Misha Barton. And so for all of that, they were very open, but clearly that's stuff they'd thought through and were finally willing to say. And then there's other stuff like the arc in season three where Marissa goes to public school and befriends like the bizarro versions of Ryan and Seth and Summer. And this guy named Johnny somehow takes over the show for half a season. Like they didn't want to talk about that at all because they realized that was just terrible and there was no excuse for it. And so their their sort of garment rending over that felt extremely spontaneous. You mentioned their desire to kill off Marissa and, and the regret that they now have for doing that. That's a huge bombshell if you're a fan of, of the OC. But would you say that that's the biggest thing that you learned about the show in, in the course of writing the book? That's definitely the biggest thing in terms of things I was not expecting. There were other things that I feel are also sort of big, and I hate to use the word juicy because like this is, you know, people, this is people's jobs and people's lives and all of that. But there's other sort of memorable stuff about like Adam Brody, for instance, was very checked out of the show for the last two years and sort of very palpably unhappy. And he would express it in ways that in hindsight, were not super professional. And he cops to all of that, you know, in the interviews I did with him, in addition to what other people had to say about that. But definitely like you heard rumblings at the time that some people weren't happy. So that's not like shocking shocking. It's just the level of detail I got, I thought was more than I expected. But definitely the Misha story is the biggest thing in terms of that is not at all what the public narrative was back in 2006. And I talked to enough people and enough of those people were clearly in I don't give a crap mode in terms of how much they were willing to say that I feel like if it was substantially not the version that's in the book, somebody would have said that just because so many of the stories completely concurred with one another in that way, even though Misha herself really was reluctant to talk about it at all. What was the tone of your conversation with Misha like? Uh, Delicate. 
She is definitely the person I spoke with for the shortest period of time. She is the one who required the most negotiating to get her. She's written a few things, you know, sort of hinting at the fact that this was very unhappy experience for her, but has not gone into any more detail and clearly did not want to go into that level of detail with me, which I respect. You know, if this if, if this was traumatic for her, you know, and she doesn't want to unpack her trauma in front of, you know, a journalist, that's completely her right and I get that. But I guess because of that, she was really wary and there was a lot of questions I asked that she simply didn't answer or gave very brief answers to. There's definitely some stuff in there where you can very clearly read between the lines of what she's saying. But, you know, definitely I had to get a lot more about her from other people than I was able to get from from Misha herself. How much do you think her experience on this show affected what became of her career? I, I don't know. I mean, certainly like if all the gossip at the time was that she was this difficult person who, you know, got fired or, you know, George Costanza'd her way into getting off the show, then like that couldn't have helped her career. At the same time, one of the themes of that chapter about Misha leaving the show is that Misha's mother, who at the time was her manager, was very unhappy that while uh, Brody and Ben McKenzie were getting lots of movie offers and things, Misha was not getting them as much. And she felt like given Misha's level of celebrity and the popularity of the show, she should. So it may be that already, for whatever reason, the business had decided that it didn't want to, you know, be in the Misha Barton business. I honestly don't know. But certainly, like, the atmosphere at the time could not have helped in the slightest. I was struck by how sad that chapter was. And not just because apparently talking about (laughs) Marissa's death apparently makes Stephanie Savage cry to this day. But, like, all of it was... Here's someone who was obviously profoundly unhappy, who everyone's telling their stories of Misha sitting off to the side, reading her Penguin classics and just being kind of alone. You're doing a book that is about a show that when people think about it, they normally think about it being a fun show and you want to do a fun oral history. What were the challenges of doing a chapter that really was this kind of melancholic thing within a book that was supposed to be fun? Here's what I would say. One, I think there's a lot of stuff in the book that is fun, especially when you're chronicling that first season of the show, which was like one of the all-time great broadcast network TV seasons. Just everyone was having a great time. All sorts of wacky things were happening. The show was at its creative peak, all of that. So there's a lot of fun stuff circling around that chapter. But the other is, again, like, I think even OC fans who, like, think of the show as fun and love the show as fun know that something weird and bad happened that resulted in Misha leaving the show and Marissa dying. And I think they want to know about that. And so, like, I wasn't going to do this if this was just going to be, like, a puff piece. Like, if Josh and Stephanie just wanted me to tell, you know, the official, you know, PR-approved history of the show. Uh, And I wasn't also looking to come in and do a hatchet job on anybody. It was just, like, this is the story that people told. And I tried to be as honest as I could. And I tried to be as fair to everyone as I could. You know, when people said something and, like, in the middle of a paragraph, there's a quote that could be really explosive if you take away the context. I was always very careful to like make sure you see that in context so that it doesn't come across as something that it it actually wasn't. I don't know how to tell you this. Someone's going to aggregate it so that that context is removed. Yep. Yep. I know. I know. I know. (laughs) As as long as you've made your peace with that, that's all that matters. Yes. You are basically the Kitty Kelly of the OC. If you are happy with that as being your niche in life. All right. Right now as we're recording this, it's 12 days out from the book's publication on November 28th. Tomorrow, when people are listening to this, it'll be 11 days. So the public has not seen this book. You guys have. The people I interviewed for the book have all gotten copies. And so basically for months and months, I have sort of had this nagging anxiety at the back of my head of everyone I interviewed has my email address. Many of them have my cell phone. When they get copies of the book, am I going to start to be deluged with angry messages 
angry texts, angry phone calls. So far, that has not happened. It may down the road, you know, maybe some of them haven't had a chance to read it yet. But my hope, at least from the the couple of people I've talked to about it already, is that they're going to look at it and say, no, this is more or less what happened and it's okay. That's the ultimate stamp of approval when you don't hear anything back other than silence. I've done one oral history in my career for Scandal and it was a lot of heavy lifting and it was just for what was a a very short print piece. And then we expanded for online, but it was nothing like the heavy lifting you've done here, but it was still hours of interviews and research and everything else. But when you hear nothing back, that's a good sign. Right now it feels good. We'll see how it feels, uh, you know, starting on November 28th or so. I mean, you know, look, anytime we talk about retro TV or pretty much any TV that that is successful in this landscape, there's always conversations. And I'm sure you had these two with Josh and Stephanie about revisiting the OC, whether it's a revival or a reboot. What did they have to say about that? They've been pretty firm that it's not going to happen. Like people have approached Josh basically once a year, you know, ever sense about it coming back. And he feels like you can't do a reboot where it's new characters, like, you know, new people move into the cul-de-sac in Newport Beach or something, because the show is so much the Cohen family and specifically Ryan and Seth. And Adam Brody and Ben McKenzie both don't seem to want to do it. And even if they did want to do it, it's just the show is from like this particular moment in time when it was a lot more fun, I guess, to be like watching these fabulously wealthy people in this like incredibly conservative Southern California enclave, you know, having all of these wacky adventures and things. And I think if they were to do the show now, it would have to be in such a different social context as to make it really difficult for the things that were great about the show to work. I mean, maybe they could do it. Josh and Stephanie are not untalented. It would just be really hard. And they, I think, feel correctly that they'd be better served just trying to do something else. We've had people on the podcast come on to talk about an oral history of Grey's Anatomy, which was written with Grey's Anatomy still on the air, and about an oral history of Big Bang Theory, which was written two years after Big Bang Theory went off the air. One of them had the cast and the creative's participation. The other one didn't necessarily have that. But what would you say the impact of being able to have taken this amount of time from the show has allowed in terms of reflection from anyone involved? It was hugely helpful because it was so far in the past that nobody felt the need to like protect either themselves or other people. Not that like anybody was talking trash about their colleagues, but like everyone was willing to be candid about what was happening because they're all in different places in their lives. They're in different places in their careers. They're all older. You know, Josh was 26, I think, when they made the pilot, 27 when he was making the majority of the first season. You know, that's really young. You know, now he's in his 40s. And so he's got a different perspective. At the time, I think he was the youngest showrunner ever, right? Yes, certainly for a uh, network drama. There may have been a comedy person younger. I was not able to research that to that extent, but definitely at the time he was. And so everyone, you know, was willing to say things. And also the fact that I had the approval of Josh and Stephanie to do this helped. And also the fact that I talked extensively to Josh and Stephanie before I did a single interview with anybody else. And so what would happen a lot of the time is I would tell someone a story that Josh and Stephanie had told me. And the person on the other end of the Zoom would look surprised and say, wait, are we allowed to talk about that? And I would say, yes, Josh and Stephanie told this to me and they want you to be candid. And so they would go off and they would be candid. And the most interesting one in some ways was Brody, because he's the only actor I interviewed twice. And the first time we talked to each other, he was pretty down on the experience of having done the show. He felt like it was something better left in his past. He literally said that he hated watching himself on it. He didn't think he was very good. And like, he just didn't seem to remember much of anything, which is definitely the 
disadvantage of doing something this late. And then a month or so later, he emails me out of the blue and says, you know what? After I talked to you, I started watching some episodes of season one and it really jogged some memories. Let's talk again. And the second time we talked, he was much more sort of like generous of spirit to both the experience and to himself. You know, he said, look, I still don't think I would play him that way now, but like I can see what I was doing then and I respect the fact that I was trying stuff. So like there was a lot of catharsis there, not just from him, but from everybody. You know, Autumn Reeser, who played Taylor Townsend in the later seasons is very like honest about like she came to the show late. She came to it after its peak, after like its huge popularity, after its best moments, after the time when everyone was pals with one another and going out to clubs every weekend and going to Coachella together. And she's like, everyone was really nice to me. You know, no, no one gave me any kind of problem, but I felt the entire time like I had missed the experience, you know, and that's something that I can't imagine she would have been willing to say, you know, if I did this in 2010 or something. Who didn't you get? All right. So Chris Pratt is somewhat busy being Chris Pratt. So he was not available to talk about playing Che in the fourth season. I didn't get any of the guys from Rooney, which I really wanted to get because they're the first band to perform on the show. Although it turns out one of the writers on the show is now friends with them. And so he was able to offer some secondhand Rooney perspective. Look, if you do an entire episode of a TV show where all anyone does is talk about how awesome Rooney is, if you can't get a friendship with one of the guys in Rooney out of that experience, what did you get out of it? (laughs) I don't know. And then the last one is we really wanted to talk to Olivia Wilde because she was such a big part of the second season and also a big part of the origin story of the show because she was the runner up to play Marissa. And there were a lot of people at both Fox and Warner Brothers who like very strongly felt she should get the job and did not believe in Misha. And Josh and Stephanie and McGee were the only ones really arguing for her. So we really wanted to talk to her. And the problem is the window in which I was interviewing anybody was exactly the same window as the Don't Worry Darling press cycle. And so every single time Josh would say, all right, I think I think now's a good time. Like things have quieted down a little bit. I will reach out to her. Some new crazy thing would happen over the, the lifespan of that movie. And all of a sudden we would all say to each other, no, no, she's not going to want to do an interview now. And so by the time that had all finally completely quieted down, I had to turn in the manuscript. Olivia Wilde, who of course went on to do Skin instead in that development season. Do you have anything to say about Skin, Alan? Oh, I have so much to say about skin in this book. It is shocking. Like it comes up so many times that I start like in the footnotes talking about a drinking game. Every time I mention skin and at a certain point I say, okay, stop drinking because you will die if we keep this going. Like it's the show lasted five episodes and it is sort of an integral part of the entire lifespan of the OC somehow. I would say to some degree, it's an integral part of all of our lifespan. Alan, before we started this conversation, you said you had a great answer for why someone who didn't watch The O.C. would still love your book about The O.C. I would hate to not give you a chance to tell us the answer to that question. Well, Mr. Skeptical, here is what I would say. All right. I mean, originally when I when Josh and Stephanie approached me to do this and early on in the mo- throughout most of the reporting of it, my thinking was this is going to be a book about the OC for OC fans. That is going to be its audience. And then as I started putting together everything that Oriana and I had gathered and like shaping it into a narrative, I began to realize, no, like it's a bigger story than that. It's, it is the story of the show. And if you love the OC, I think you'll really like the book. It's like taking the specific and making it universal. You look at the story of this show and it tells the story of like making any TV show, like just how difficult it can be to get actors together, to find the right creative people, to have to deal with executives, to have to deal with pressures, to go from completely obscure to hugely famous. And then go from hugely famous back to, oh, you know, I remember that guy and what that's like to have sort of all of these pressures pulling on you. There are so many different things that happened over the the lifespan of the OC. It was such a topsy-turvy ride. 
and almost every single thing I can think of a version of it happening on some other show. And I think if you were someone who cares enough about like the art of television and the making of television to listen to this fine podcast every week hosted by my BFFs, Dan Feinberg and, and Leslie Goldberg, I think you would really get a lot out of this, whether or not you know what Chris Mika is, you care about yoga lattes, you have ever said the name of the band Rooney, etc. I, I mean, I really think, and I've heard this from a few people who've read the book already, that that was sort of their takeaway from it is they were not expecting it to like have this weirdly wide scope about it. Welcome to the OC. The oral history arrives November 28th, just in time for Chrismica. Alan, thank you so much for joining us. Pre-order early, pre-order often. Thanks, guys. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Lots to choose from this week and even next. Dan, you've got the first half of The Crown's final season arriving on Netflix, which also launches its animated Scott Pilgrim update. Hulu has the FX comedy A Murder at the End of the World. Apple debuts Monarch, Legacy of Monsters. And Max's Julia is back for its second season. Then coming up the week of Thanksgiving, you've got the highly anticipated return of Fargo on FX, the unscripted reality competition show that nobody asked for, Squid Game, The Challenge at Netflix, and the Doctor Who anniversary special on Disney. Dan, two weeks of stuff. What do you got? Fortunately, Squid Game, The Challenge, it's embargoed, so you, you can't get my highly intricate and intellectual uh, reaction to Squid Game, The Challenge. Well, apologies for those who are holding out for that. I also haven't watched Julia Season 2 yet. I think ultimately that's going to end up being kind of comfort food viewing for somewhere down the road. There were just too many other things. Pun intended there, Dan? Uh, sure, yes. Let's uh, totally, completely intended. Absolutely. <laughs> Very much so. Also, I, I feel like to some small degree, the kind of appetite or need for Julia season two wasn't wholly sated, but it was somewhat sated by Lessons in Chemistry, which is obviously not the exact same show, what with it not being technically about Julia Child, but it still is a period show about a woman on a cooking show, etc, etc. I'm not saying we can't have two of those or three of those or whatever, just kind of glanced at this and I'm like, wait, didn't I just watch this show? And the answer was no, I didn't. It was a totally different show with Brie Larson. At some point I'll get to Julia. I thought the first season was quite fine. Lots though, as you say, let's try going semi-chronological, I guess. The sixth season of The Crown has already hit Netflix, and it is the first half of the sixth season, or the first 40% of the sixth season. It's a four-episode mini-arc that is premiering now on Netflix, and then the last six will premiere next month on Netflix. It actually makes some sense if you watch it. These four episodes are basically the Dodie and Diana arc. That is what this is. It is what a certain segment of the audience has been looking forward to. I, I do not personally understand that segment of the audience. It is not, to me, what this show was. It feels like it is simultaneously half a Lifetime original movie and half The Queen, which Peter Morgan already wrote and which won Oscars and all of that stuff. So, but it is still a thing that they know people are going to talk about. And so, as I said in my review, I, I think this might have actually been kind of smart for Netflix in terms of splitting it up, letting people either celebrate or complain about the end of the Diana and Dodie arc. And, you know, the British press can 
rend garments and gnash teeth about how they treated sainted Diana and all of that. And then the show can go into its last six episodes and it can kind of sum up whatever the story is. Now, of course, people are going to go to those uh, six episodes and they're going to be like, ooh, are they going to get to Meghan Markle? Are they going to, what are they going to do with Kate Middleton? How is it going to go? How is it going to end? And somewhat, I do feel like we're at the point now where we need to be reflecting on whether Peter Morgan probably should have wrapped the show after a fifth season, whether they should have been like, okay, everything after a certain point Point is is too close. Everything after a certain point is a different story. And I think that probably these four episodes kind of make the argument that we didn't need this, that the third and fourth episodes in particular, I thought were pretty bad, unfortunately. And I've never felt that way about The Crown. I've, I've always thought The Crown was a pretty great show and a, and a pretty smartly handled show at every point. And I didn't need to see Peter Morgan deal again with Diana's death and with you know why it took the queen so long to respond and what the inspirations were behind her big public address and all of that because I saw him do that already and I guess the only reason to watch was is he going to have a different angle on the queen and the answer is no he really unfortunately totally does not this is a, a total the fourth episode in particular a total rehash of the queen which is unfair to Imelda Staunton because Helen Mirren is Helen Mirren, and so the fact that she's being asked to play the exact same beats is a real frustration at a certain point. And as for the rest of it, the first couple episodes, the first two of the four episodes, I thought were decent. I would even say good. I thought they were sort of the crown episodes. The first episode is kind of how Diana and Dodie's relationship started. The second episode is a very smart, very the crown-esque aspect that parallels two famous sets of photos reflecting Charles and Diana's very different lives. And then the third episode, everything goes to hell and... I'm not, this is not a spoiler because it's history and you know that bad things are going to happen in Paris. It's going to be tragic. You know, I, I certainly remember where I was when the news coverage of, of Diana's accident broke and I'm sure many people do. And so the third episode I thought was the only one that was genuinely bad. I thought the way that it handled Dodie and Dodie's father and the entire nature of the relationship, I thought it was just honestly kind of a, a mess and then it it leads up to the tragedy but none of it worked for me at all and so you're kind of looking for what the highlights are and the highlights are Elizabeth Debicki is great as Diana she was great last season you know even when there was significantly less attention Emmy attention for the show she got an Emmy nomination so folks understand I think she's great and I think the rest of the cast for the most part continues to do super work I thought that uh, Dominic West had some very good stuff as Prince Charles he's still not perfect cast casting, but I think that he did some good stuff. I think that the kids playing young William and Harry are pretty good. I think that Amelda Staunton's great, but the show has moved on from Queen Elizabeth, probably prematurely, I think, but kind of is what it is. The first three episodes, I think Amelda Staunton's in like five minutes and I missed her. And then the fourth episode, when she does have things to do, she has the same things to do that Helen Mirren had. Anyway, four episodes, I was disappointed with these four episodes as a package, but I think that they probably are neatly enough contained that so you'll watch and either it'll work for you or it won't. And then come December, you'll be ready to move on and see how the story ends. And so I am ready to move on and see how the story ends. Let's move on to A Murder at the End of the World, because that is the other one that is already premiered and whatnot. And I've seen all seven of these episodes. So it's created by Britt Marling and Zalbot Mondelage. And I thought the first five episodes 
were really, really good. And then it kind of goes off the rails or didn't materialize or resolve its mystery as well as I would have liked it to. I don't think it's some sort of grand, horrible violation where people are going to be like, ah, this I can't believe I wasted a lot of hours. This is a long series. This is seven episodes. Three of them are an hour or over an hour, and one of them is 70-something minutes. And then kind of the last two, which didn't work for me, are really short. The premise is you've got Emma Corrin, who was fantastic on The Crown, which makes for a good transition. They play Darby Hart, who is a true crime writer who became obsessive because the character, I don't know if the character is, the character I don't think is defined as non-binary. I know that Emma Corrin is, so I'm going to refer to the character as her until I hear otherwise, whereas Emma Corrin uses they, them, so just going to try to keep respectfully working my pronouns correctly in this circumstance. And if I make any mistakes, trust me, not intended, particularly because Emma Corrin really is the best part of the show. They're fantastic. But going back again to the character, she gets invited to a mysterious retreat by an eccentric tech billionaire played by Clive Owen. Clive Owen's character likes to hold annual retreats where he invites geniuses from different fields to mysterious locations and they talk about tech and stuff and so the character gets invited and very quickly somebody is murdered well fortunately she's been described in the la times as the gen z sherlock holmes so she begins investigating but adding complications they're in iceland and a storm is coming the mystery aspects here and the mood setting I think it's fantastic. I, I think it really and truly, like I was, within like five minutes, I was like, even if they barely shot any of this in Iceland, I would like to go on a vacation to Iceland now. I would like to get invited by an eccentric billionaire to a remote retreat in Iceland and just talk about big world issues. And if somebody happened to get murdered, I'd maybe help solve that mystery. I, you know, sure, why not? I'm, a, I'm an agreeable kind of guy. I don't, I'm definitely not the Gen X Sherlock Holmes or anything, but I listened to a couple seasons of Serial. So uh, there, there's a lot of interesting stuff to the mystery, and there are big ideas that the show is broaching about kind of the post-pandemic world, because the show is very much about isolation. It's very much about loneliness. It's very much about kind of the craziness that comes when you cease to have normal connections to people. And the fact that as the world was falling apart because of climate change, people were becoming more and more insular, how that might be a bad thing and how that might keep us from coming together at the moment at which humanity needs to come together most. And so I dug the establishing of the mystery. I dug particularly Emma Corrin's performance. I think that Emma Corrin is giving, basically, it's an Elizabeth Moss performance. And I only mean that as a compliment because Elizabeth Moss is fantastic. She is as good as the TV industry has. And so for Emma Corrin to be giving a performance that makes me go, ooh, this is the kind of performance that Elizabeth Moss would have given, for sure. Now, part of the small problem with that is that there's a backstory murder mystery that's being solved, which is in almost entirely borrowed from, stolen from, inspired by, coincidentally, exactly like, whatever you want to say, the plot of Elizabeth Moss's Shining Girls, which no one remembers. It was on Apple TV Plus, and then it kind of just didn't materialize as anything. So that was a little bit distracting for me. It won't be distracting for anyone else. Emma Corrin is great. Britt Marling has an interesting and enigmatic performance as a hacker. A lot of really good supporting people. Joan Chen, Raul Esparza, Jermaine Fowler in a very nicely understated performance, et cetera, et cetera. So what I'm saying is I dug 
the first five episodes. It's at no time as weird and out there as the OA. Some people will be disappointed by that. Other people will find similarities in the way that it handles things. But to me, where it finally ended up going was a, was a bit of a disappointment. And really, by the end of the seventh episode, I would say a pretty big disappointment, but not the kind of one that would cause me to say, don't watch this, just know that maybe you'll be frustrated by the end, but not frustrated in a I don't get answers kind of way. So if you get emotionally invested, hop on board. Let us continue. Monarch, Legacy of Monsters. It's a Godzilla Monsterverse show for TV. <laughs> that can be that could be my review. I've I've thought that the Godzilla Monsterverse type movies have been decent. Uh, there was Godzilla, there was Kong Island, there was whatever the thing was where Godzilla and King Kong fought and killed millions of people in Tokyo. I haven't thought that any of them were great, but I've thought they were all interesting. And this isn't great, but it it's got some of the fun that you want from a show about giant monsters destroying cities. It's got also some of those giant monsters, but there are still large stretches where the show is like, okay, yes, we're a show about giant monsters, but we're also a TV show, so we're just not going to have the giant monsters. You might at some point go, okay, where are the giant monsters? I'm not all that interested in these human-type people, even though some of the humans are played by Wyatt Russell and by Kurt Russell, and they coincidentally played the same person, which is a kind of fun little twist. There's a lot of strange jumping around in time happening here. I don't think it all works, but it didn't offend me. Again, it, it moves along decently. And, and what it's aspiring to, for the most part, is a general sense of fun and minor mystery. And I think it achieves those things. But I'm going to be honest, I made it to episode five. And this was the same situation last week where I talked about sort of playing triage and doing half and half on shows. I was kind of going back and forth on episodes of this and Murder at the End of the World. And finally, after episode five of each, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to finish Murder at the End of the World and life will go on on Monarch. It did not force me to keep watching. Let's go quickly on Netflix's Scott Pilgrim show, because thanks to the wonders of Do Not Reveal lists, I can't really tell you much about it. <laughs> Netflix has a really restrictive list of things that we're not supposed to reveal. And while this will come out after the review embargo, so I don't need to worry about that, I I'm not going to tell you a lot of specifics. It is animated. Brian O'Malley, Brian K. O'Malley, and Ben David Grabinski are the creators, and it is an animated version of the story that Edgar Wright previously did as a live-action feature. So if you've read the comic and you have seen the movie, then you're like, okay, I kind of know what this story is, especially since the vocal cast of the TV series is identical to the movie. And the fun of the show is that you actually don't know because it starts off being exactly the same, then it goes some place different. I can't tell you where it goes different. I can tell you that to me, this was the third most entertaining version of this particular story. I think that the comic is fantastic. I think that the movie is a minor miracle that it works as well as it does. I think it works as well as it does in large part because it is masterfully cast. And so having all of those actors coming back as vocal actors, a lot of fun, good to have that. Ultimately, this is one where to me, I found that there were definitely diminishing returns as it got further and further from the source material. I understood completely what they were doing. I just didn't understand at all times why they thought they wanted to do it other than to be different. So it's like, okay, absolutely different, not better. And finally, new season of Fargo. It premieres next week. I have talked to so many people 
who are like, I really liked the first two seasons and the third season I was a little mixed on. And then the fourth season I watched one episode of and I couldn't get into it. This is a fairly consistent critique that I've heard. I'm not sure, in fact, that I know anybody other than best friend of the five, Alan Sepinwall, and several other television critics who made it through the entire season. I did, and I didn't think it was bad, honestly. I think its problem was it tried to do too many things. It had too many characters. It had too much story. Episodes were 60 plus minutes, and no one was telling Noah Hawley to trim, and they couldn't because there was too much stuff, and that was ultimately the problem. There was just no hook to it. Season five, which premieres next week, is kind of a return to not the intimate version of the story, but to the smaller and clearer version of the story where there are kidnappings, there are murders, everything goes haywire, there are law enforcement figures, some of them are bumbling, some of them are surprisingly clever, etc. So you've got Juno Temple as a woman with a mysterious past that comes back to haunt her. The past involves John Hamm playing a, you know, far, let's let's just say ultra far right North Dakota sheriff who comes after her. You've got Jennifer Jason Lee as the mother-in-law of the Juno Temple character, all sorts of very, very good people. And it's a much less ambitious season. And as such, it's much more purely enjoyable. Do I think that it has as much on its mind as the last season of Fargo did? No, but only the first episode here is over 50 minutes. This is absolutely Noah Hawley working in tightly trimmed mode, and he hasn't had to do that for a while. And the result is there's just a lot of kind of nasty fun. I think Juno Temple is hilarious. She's doing probably the most outsized accent in recent Fargo history, but it's very funny because she's very funny. Jennifer Jason Lee, I think, is great. And it had me thinking of her performance in Hudsucker Proxy. She has her Coen Brothers bonafides down. But that was a performance in Hudsucker Proxy that at the time, a lot of people were very critical of. I think if you go back and watch it now, it's better than that. But I think she's great here. John Hamm always is good at playing kind of bad guys. And this is as bad a guy as he's ever played. Lots and lots of kind of violent, wacky fun. Honestly, the movie I kept comparing it to, especially in the first three episodes, is Home Alone, because there's a lot of home invasion-style mayhem. Not necessarily a thing we've seen from the show before, but it's it's just really good. And so, yeah, lots of, lots of good actors. I've seen six episodes. They really go by very, very quickly if you felt like the last season was homework. So, Fargo. So, to do the quick rehash, because that was way, way too long as a monologue goes, uh, we'll see if Leslie's alive after I do my summary. Are you alive, Leslie? Hello. Okay, excellent. <laughs> that was that was all I want, just to make sure I, I didn't kill you. But yes, so to rehash, the first four episodes of the sixth season of The Crown are unfortunately a mess. Easily the least I've liked The Crown, and The Crown is a show that I really, really like. But there are moments, and Elizabeth Debicki is great. Murder at the End of the World, extremely strong for five episodes, goes a little bit pear-shaped, but Emma Corrin fantastic performance just just great work from them so worth watching for that monarch fun doesn't have the budget to be any bigger than that kind of wish it did entertaining maybe not kind of a bingey show though so i'll i'll maybe get more enthusiastic down the road scott pilgrim entertaining good not as good as the movie or the comic and fargo season six bit of a bounce back if you thought that fargo i keep saying six when it's season five anyway who knows if you felt like the fourth season was a drop in quality you might like this one 
more because it's kind of more pure Fargo. Yeah, that gives you plenty of TV to watch. Trust me. For more of Dan's recommendations. Yeah, I said more. 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 More, More, Dan. No. No. Is your newsletter going to be out during Thanksgiving, Dan? Yes, my newsletter's always out. That just doesn't mean that there's more. There's just no more. It's rehashing a lot of the same. (laughs) For additional thoughts from Dan about what you've already heard, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now see this newsletter and, of course, bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. That feels like a great place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Feel free to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review-y thing. They help spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on social media, not Twitter. Twitter's garbage. Come say hi to us elsewhere. Blech. To hell with Twitter. I wish we could all escape from Twitter. Anyway, on all social media platforms, she's at Snoodit with two O's. I'm at The Fine Print, F-I-E-N. Let us know what's working, what isn't working. If you have questions for future mailbag segments, you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That is tvstop5, the numeral five, at thr.com. Have a happy Thanksgiving and until two weeks from now, Leslie. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. We'll see you again on December 1st.